Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks, you guys, so much. You know, the miracle of that great old hymn, Holy, 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 is that God's perfect holiness, God's absolute perfection, does not keep Him from reaching graciously out to our brokenness. That's an amazing thing to ponder. We are spending three weeks in the story of Cornelius and Peter, and I want to tell you a little bit why that is. It's an incredibly important story that usually gets lost in modern readings of the book of Acts, but in the early church, I would say in the book of Acts, and you could argue this, but I would say in the book of Acts, this is probably the second most important story for the impact of the church going forward. The first, very obviously, is the story of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and nothing we do happens without the Holy Spirit's power. But there's something happening here in the story of Cornelius that is critically important. Last week, Pastor Steve led us into an introduction to Cornelius and his character. Next week, Pastor Rich is going to conclude the story. And this this morning, we are kind of in the guts of the story. And so if you've got your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 10. We're just going to read through about 20 verses in the middle of this story, and I'd encourage you, if you haven't done so, to take time maybe this afternoon and just read through the whole chapter. But let's start in Acts 10 with verse 9. We're just going to go through the story, and then we'll come back and talk through it a bit. What's happened up to this point is that we've met Cornelius. Cornelius is a a Roman centurion, a guy who is seeking God, and he sends some of his servants in response to a vision of an angel that God gives him. He sends his servants to Peter, and they meet up with Peter in a town called Joppa. And so now we're going to start in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, these are Cornelius' servants now, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. 
And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent to you, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. And, and it's very obvious we're in the middle of the story, right? So that's a little frustrating. But we have confidence that Pastor Rich is going to finish things out next week. If you're new to the Bible, I don't want you to get freaked out because we're going to be alluding to a lot of stuff this morning, going back into some of the old stories from the, the history of the people of Israel, what we call the Old Testament. And we're going to blip onto those stories. We're not going to take time to look them up. And if you don't know those stories, I'm so glad you're here. And please don't be offended by that. Just hang in there because a little later on as we talk together about this text and what God is saying to us this morning, we're going to get to the point where it comes back to what is God saying to us today. So just hang on if you don't know the stories. Maybe you know some of these stories. Maybe you heard them as a child. You might be familiar with the story, for instance, of Jonah out of the Old Testament. It's a story we love to tell children, which is a little disturbing in itself, how this guy did what God didn't want and then got swallowed up by a big fish and vomited out onto the beach. Yeah, we tell kids that one. Um, Luke, as he writes this story... And I think God, as he engineers the events around this story, is making very clear that we're supposed to have Jonah's story in mind. Why would I say that? Well, Luke mentions that the action is starting in Joppa eight times. Nothing gets mentioned eight times in Scripture. It just doesn't happen. But Luke tells us, Joppa, 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 Joppa. He wants us to know that's why is Joppa important. Well, Joppa is the place where when God came to the prophet Jonah in the story in the Old Testament and said, go to Nineveh, go to the Assyrians, go to those terrible, terrible people and proclaim my word to them. Jonah said, no. And Joppa's the place where he went and he caught a boat going to Spain. Important association for Joppa. Not only that, but maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Peter's dad's name was, guess what, Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah is what they called Peter in Jewish circles. Simon, son of Jonah. God is making really clear that we should be thinking about the story of Jonah. Well, what's the big deal about the Jonah story here this morning? Don't ever believe that a story in the Bible is just for children. All right? Don't ever fool yourself by saying, well, that's just a kid's story. That Noah's Ark thing, that's just for kids. That Jonah story about the big fish, that's just for kids. Don't ever believe that because if you do, you're going to miss something really good God has planted in that story for you. So the story of Jonah is important because it's about God's grace for people who are outside of experiencing God. The Assyrians were the Nazis of the ancient world. They were bad people. And they had dominated, they had invaded, they had overtaken, they had taken prisoner all of the countries around them, including the northern kingdom of Israel. And when God sent Jonah to go speak to the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, when God sent him there, Jonah could see what was going to happen. 
And if you read the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, you're going to see how this happens. Because what happens is Jonah runs away, and then he goes back to, to Nineveh after the fish incident. He gets vomited up on the beach, and then he goes to Nineveh. And he gets to Nineveh, and he preaches the lamest sermon ever. Now, I have preached some really lame sermons in my lifetime, but Jonah takes the cake on this one. He walks a day's journey into this great city, and his sermon is, and I quote, 40 days more and Nineveh will be destroyed. But in response, in the story, in response, the Assyrians fall to their knees in repentance. They put sackcloth and ashes. They say, God, what have we done? Why are you going to destroy our city? And there's this massive revival that happens in Nineveh based on that lame sermon. And Jonah is furious. Every preacher's dream comes true. The people are falling on their knees in response to this inadequate sermon. And Jonah's furious. In fact, if you read in Jonah 4, he explains why he's furious. He says, see, this is why I ran away from you. This is why I took the ship for Spain, God, because I know that you are a merciful God. You are a gracious God. You are a loving God. And I knew you were going to be nice to these really bad people. That's why I didn't want to come. Jonah's pretty honest. Don't miss this connection because in Peter's day, let's jump forward 700 years from the time of Jonah to the time of Peter. In Peter's day, Peter's equivalent to the Ninevites, Peter's equivalent to the Assyrians, those bad people, the Nazis of the ancient world, Peter's equivalent would have been the Romans. And Cornelius is not just a Roman soldier. Cornelius is not just a Roman centurion. Cornelius is a Roman centurion in what today we would call special forces. He's like the elite of the elite, the Italian cohort. He's the worst of the worst to a good Jew like Peter. You see, the Jews had carefully separated themselves from the rest of the world. Now, some of these things were in the law, but they were in the law as a way to protect the Jews, not to isolate the Jews. There's an important difference. There were three chief markers in that time of being an Orthodox Jew and how that separated you from the world around you. The first marker was circumcision, that every male baby was circumcised in Jewish households. And that because when you went to the gym in those days, and ladies, I'm sorry, but you don't get to go to the gym in ancient times. So guys, when you went to the gym in those days, you competed naked. So it was really obvious to everybody who was circumcised and who wasn't, and it separated out the Jews from other people. That was the first marker. The second marker was the Sabbath, because you see, in the ancient world, there was not a seven-day week. That is something that God gave as a gift to the Jewish people. That's why we have a seven-day week. In the ancient world, among Greek-speaking, non-Jewish people, you had lots of festivals for different gods. So you'd get a day off every now and then, according to the calendar, but you didn't get weekends off. There was no such thing as a weekend. There was no such thing as a week. But the Jews took one day out of seven and didn't work because God said, rest. Boy, do we need to hear that message today, rest. So that Sabbath day was a marker because in the neighborhood, everybody knew, well, those guys don't work on Saturdays. They're Jews. It set them apart. 
And the third, and this is really critical for our story today, is that they had certain things they would eat and they would not eat. So they had kosher laws. That's what kosher means. It's about the food that Jews would and wouldn't eat. And they couldn't eat certain things and they could eat other things if they were prepared specifically. And you know this, if you've ever eaten a special diet, you've done Atkins or you've been vegan or whatever, you go to a restaurant, it sets you apart. Everybody else at the table is like, oh yeah, you're into that. It sets you apart. It it separates you out. And that's what this did for the Jews in the ancient world. It separated them to this day. Orthodox Jews who insist on eating kosher in obedience to that law in the Old Testament say, this sets us apart. Well, here's the thing. It was always designed to protect them, but it was never designed to isolate them. And what the Jews did with these laws is they isolated themselves. They said, we're in, you're out. Nowhere was this clearer than in the way the the temple structure was built. So if you visited the temple in Jerusalem, there was an outer courtyard, and everybody, including non-Jewish people, was welcome in the outer courtyard. It was called, get this, Court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles could come and be way at the outskirts of the temple. Then there was a low wall about knee-high, And it went all the way around, separating the court of Gentiles from the court of women, where Jewish men and women and children could go inside there. And there were gaps in this little low wall, and at every gap there was a sign. Archaeologists have discovered some of these signs. And the sign said this, Any non-Jewish person who enters beyond this wall will have earned the death that finds him. In other words, it was a capital offense for a non-Jewish person to cross that barrier. And then toward the inner part was the court of men, where only Jewish adult men could go, and then the temple itself, where only the priests could go, the holy place, the holy of holies. It was all designed as a structure to keep the outsiders out and the insiders in, and you knew exactly where you fit. If you read the Bible carefully, you will find that this was not God's intention. God was never intending to keep anybody out. In fact, the whole reason God created the nation of Israel was to be a priestly people, was to be a people who reached out to the rest of the world with the news of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you can go back and read it. When God called Abraham, he said, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your father's house and your father's people and go to a different land, go to a land that I will show you. And then God started making promises. I will make your name great, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will give you this land, and through you, get this, don't miss this, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, in creating the nation of Israel, which is what God was doing in choosing Abraham, his agenda was not just for the Jewish people. It was not just for Abraham and his descendants. His agenda was for all creation. If you ever want to do an interesting study in Scripture, look for the phrase, all the nations or all the peoples in the Bible. Just go through and find every place that occurs. It's amazing. And you find that God's concern is for all peoples, all creation, not just his tight little chosen ones. 
everything in the history of Israel, the land, the kingdom, the prophets, the priesthood, all of it is for the sake of all creation, for the sake of the whole world. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Like the early church was asking this question. Who is Jesus' resurrection for? Well, now, if you've been around the church any length of time, that's a duh. I know who Jesus' resurrection is for. It's for everyone. Be careful. Who is Jesus' resurrection for? You see, in the early church, they had to figure out, is Jesus' resurrection just for Jewish people? And for anybody else who chooses to become Jewish? Because everybody else so far in the book of Acts, up to chapter 10, everybody else so far in the book of Acts who has come to faith in Jesus either has become Jewish or has already been Jewish. Or they've been practicing something very much like Judaism, like the Samaritans were. What makes Cornelius unique is that he is the first person who is completely separate from being a Jew who comes to faith in Jesus. And the question the church had to ask is, is this okay? Is this okay? In fact, in Acts chapter 15, a few chapters from now, they are going to have a big conference, the first big church conference, and the question they have to decide is exactly this. Does somebody have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? And when they get to that conference... Peter stands up and tells the story of what happened at Cornelius' house. It's incredibly significant. I remember when I was in college, I had a professor in college who was taking us through a study of the prophets. And we were reading the prophet Isaiah, and in Isaiah you read over and over again this passion that God has for all creation, for all the nations, for all peoples, for every created thing. And you read over and over again God's call to Israel, how they were called to be God's messengers of God's love to creation, to all peoples, to all creation. And they missed it. Over and over and over again, they missed it. They said, no, this is about us. This is about us possessing the land. This is about us possessing God's favor. This is about me being God's favorite. Is kind of the way it comes across in the prophets. And this just grieved my heart. I was in this class in college and it grieved me so deeply. And finally, one day in class, I raised my hand and I said, how did they miss it? I mean, isn't this obvious? Isn't this so clear that this was God's agenda, that this is what God wanted? He wanted all the world to know him. And that's why Israel existed. Isn't How could they be so selfish to think it was all about them? How could they think it was just about them? And my professor looked at the floor and he said, It grieves me too. It's it's hard. It's hard to understand how they could miss something so obvious. Because, you know, God has spoken it so clearly. And how did the Israelites, how did the Jewish people completely miss it? He said, I'm with you. The only thing, he said, the only way I can make sense of that in my own mind is if I look at the church. I look at the Christian church today because we have exactly the same call. 
And so often we miss it in exactly the same way. We think Jesus' coming is about me getting to heaven. And we completely miss the call that God has for us to all of His beloved creation. So let me ask you this. Who's outside God's love? And before you say, Jeff, that's another duh question. Who's outside God's love? Now, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you know the right answer is, well, nobody's outside God's love. So then let me ask you this. When you think about different groups of people or you think about individuals and you think about them not being outside God's love, the next line in your mind is, if they would only... If they would only stop shooting up. If they would only stop sleeping around. If they would only convert. If they would only... There's a great story in John's Gospel about Jesus being presented with a woman who is caught in sin. And at the end of the story, Jesus says two things to her. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If we flip the order on those two statements, we have completely lost Christianity. Because you see, God takes the initiative and he comes to us, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, when we were still enemies of God, he comes to us. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and I'll show up and love you. So a couple of things we need to say out of that. First of all, sin is real and powerful, and we're not making light of it. We're not saying it's okay, but we're saying we're powerless in the face of it, and God is the one who shows up and sets us free, breaks our chains, loves us. Secondly, if you feel this morning like you are too broken, too sinful, too outside to be loved by God, you're wrong. Because there in the middle of whatever it is you're dealing with, there in the middle of whatever holds you captive, there in the middle of whatever God is grieving for in your life, He's there and He loves you. God's holiness doesn't keep Him at a distance from you. God isn't looking down His nose at you. And third, the Christian church, if it is healthy, the Christian church, if it is healthy, will always be reaching across boundaries with the love of Jesus. So let me give you some concrete examples of how we can intentionally go across the boundaries with the love of Jesus. As you walk out after the worship service, you're going to see a table back here, and there's some women who are standing around that table because they are planning to go to Haiti. You might have heard about it in the video reel before the worship service started if you were here early enough to see those video announcements. Now, you might think, I I can't go to Haiti. My circumstances don't allow it. Well, of course not. Not everybody can go to Haiti. And not everybody should, but... How do you help them when they are planning to go? They've put themselves on the line to go. How do you help them go? See, every mission trip needs a ground crew and a flight crew. They're the flight crew. They're going. 
but they need a ground crew, and that ground crew prays and provides financial support and helps with the logistics on this end. Stop at their table and talk to them about how you can get involved in those boundary crossing things. This Wednesday night is Slime Night at Vacation Bible School. I hope that you are aware that there are some really interesting things happening here in our youth ministry and our children's ministry. Slime Night, it was paint night two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, um, and there are some fantastic pictures out there of people with, like, blue faces and stuff, not me. Um, I was mostly purple. But it's Slime Night this Wednesday. And I think we're okay in the volunteer department, but you know what? Slime isn't cheap. And we need people to step up and say, I believe in what's going on with our kids. I believe it's important to reach across a boundary to a child who lives in Wilmer, New London, Spicer, wherever, who doesn't know the name of Jesus or who has only heard the name of Jesus and has never experienced the love of Jesus. And I'm willing to pitch in and buy some slime so that that kid can know Jesus. I am not joking about that. This fall, we've got something called the Alpha Course that's coming here. And some of you are familiar with Alpha. Most of you are not. Uh, I was actually, this week, I was standing right here and I was just about to launch into practicing preaching this sermon for an empty sanctuary because that's just what I have to do to make this work. And I got a phone call. I don't know if you know this, but we don't get phone reception in here. You never get a phone call in this building. And my phone rang, and it was Pastor Steve in London. So maybe that changes the equation. I don't know. But I said, what's up? And he said, I'm so excited. I said, Steve? He said, I just got done visiting the church that started the Alpha Course, Holy Trinity Brompton in London, England. He said, I just sent you a picture. I looked at my text, and sure enough, there's a picture of Holy Trinity Brompton right there. He said, I've been talking to people here about what they've done with Alpha over the last generation and the life groups that we're starting in January, and I, we're exactly on the right track. I can't wait. You know, Steve. So there's some exciting things happening. I hope you're going to be a part of Alpha this fall. It's going to be Sunday night starting in mid-September. If you don't know Jesus, it's a great chance to get to know Jesus. And so maybe there's somebody in your life you're going to invite, and they're going to come to know Jesus on this Alpha course. Grow deep in friendships. Have a great time with some people over really good food. And if you do know Jesus, Alpha is a great way to grow in your own sense of your calling and your leadership skills in His kingdom, in His church. What does new life look like? Cornelius gives us a pretty good picture of it. See, Cornelius, being a centurion, had all kinds of opportunities, access to meeting spaces. He could have rented out the the imperial hall there in Caesarea, but instead he filled up his house. He invited over all of his relatives and all of his close friends, and he said, hey, there's this really important thing going on. Would you come and be a part of it? And I'm going to invite this guy, Peter, from Joppa to come up and tell us about it. I don't know what it is, but God's been talking to me, and I want you to be here. New life over and over in the New Testament, and I've talked about this before, new life looks like a crowded group in a house that fill up the corners and are together because God is doing something among them. Life groups will be starting in January. There's a group of people who've been growing into that model of doing 
this business of Christianity in the home. And it's exciting. It's fun. I want to leave you with this thought. God is moving. God is not just idly sitting in heaven somewhere disappointed in you. No, God is moving. He's out in front of you and he has planted roots in your past. Just like when Peter looked into the past, he could see the stories of Abraham. He could see the stories of Jonah. He could see the stories of Israel throughout the ages. And he could see how God had planted roots in the past that impacted the present. Don't think that Peter missed what God was doing in inviting him to go speak to Cornelius. He got the whole Nineveh thing. He got the Jonah thing. So God is moving, planting roots in your past. Maybe it's a word that was spoken over you, a word of promise. Maybe it's an injury that you received. Somebody hurt you really bad along the way, and you've been coping with it ever since. Maybe it's something that happened years ago that you've just never been able to get out of your head for whatever reason. God has planted roots in your past that speak into your present. And God is communicating in the present. You notice in the story that Peter and Cornelius each have these visions. Cornelius sees an angel who gives him clear direction. Peter has a vision of this sheet coming down that contradicts what he understood of God's law and says, Peter, I'm not like that. I'm like this. I'm inviting everybody in. God is communicating to you in the present One of the big things God does, and we see this in the story too, is timing. Timing is everything, and God is so good at timing. And so Cornelius' messengers show up at the door of the house as soon as the vision is over. And then the Spirit says, oh, by the way, there's some guys here. Go with them. Watch for the timing of what God is doing in your life. Watch how He is putting things together. The conversation that takes place completely disconnected, but in exactly the same moment as another conversation. And you have to put those things together. Watch for God communicating in the present. And then as Pastor Steve told us last week, as he read to us the message in Revelation to the church at Philadelphia that says, I have set before you an open door. God is in the business of opening doors doors God is in the business of opening doors and it's this invitation that God gives where he opens up the door and he says now will you walk through it will you walk through it sometimes we have to wait for the door to come open that waiting is hard don't let go keep seeking keep yearning keep wishing And then pray, pray like mad, because you know what? Every one of us lives with these chains that want to hold us back. There are powers in this world that don't want you walking through that open door. And so we pray that God would break every chain that holds us back, that he would set us free and give us ears to hear so that he might lead us into all he has planned for us. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you are so good at speaking into our present. Set us free. Remind us of what you've done in our past. Give us ears to hear you in the present and give us faith to trust you for the future and the doors that you open for us. In Jesus' name, amen.